Welcome to AECP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Loti Mulder. I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at AECP, and I'm one of your hosts. My name is Dan Milner. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at AACP and also one of your hosts. Today, we're having another Leadership Institute Book Club discussion, and we're discussing the book, When? The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing by Daniel H. Pink. We have some Leadership Institute graduates as guests, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Thank you both for having me here as a guest for our discussion for laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Rena Kunso. I'm a physician, a pathologist, and I'm joining in today from the University at Buffalo in Buffalo, New York. And hello, everyone. I'm very happy to be meeting with you today. My name is Jeannie Guglielmo. I'm a clinical assistant professor at the School of Health Professions in Stony Brook at Stony Brook University, and I'm also the chair of the Clinical Laboratory Sciences Program. I've been a member of ASCP since 1994, and I'm very, very excited to be joining you today. Hi, I'm Stacy Robinson. I'm an MLS with 27 years in the profession, specializing mostly in hematology and flow cytometry. Currently, I serve as the clinical microscopy supervisor and part of the core lab management team at my facility. Well, thanks everyone so much for joining us. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology, ASCP, is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education or CME for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA category one credit. Physicians should claim credit only commiserate with the extent of their participation in the activity. So we are discussing the book, When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing by Daniel Pink, as Dan mentioned. And we want to give you a brief overview of the book first for those of you who have either read it and would like a refresher, or if you've not yet finished it or have not read the book yet, so that you can still join our discussion today. So the overall idea of the book is that it breaks down the science of time so that you can stop guessing when to do things and really pick the best times to work, eat, sleep, have your coffee, and even when to quit your job. So there are a few big ideas that this book discusses. First is the notion that our cognitive abilities fluctuate over the course of the day. Secondly, that both our innovation and creativity are actually the greatest when we are not in the peak of our personal circadian rhythm. And this is called or referred to in the book as the inspiration paradox. Then that there are three types of people, larks, owls, and third birds. Larks are people who peak in the morning, then have a dip and then recover in the evening at night. Owls are the opposite. So they recover in the morning, then have a dip, and then they actually peak in the evening or at night. And then third birds are those that are neither larks nor owls. And the majority of people are actually these third birds. And then finally, if you are stuck in the middle of a project, that picturing a person who will benefit from your efforts will deepen your dedication to your task. So in short, this book states that our days have a U-shaped curve of efficiency and even of happiness. And if we want to maximize our efficiency, we need to learn about our circadian rhythm, our personal circadian rhythms, and schedule our days accordingly as much as we can. And then finally, the book suggests to take as many breaks and short naps. So my first question to the group is, what did you learn from the book that was most surprising to you? I think that's a great description of the big ideas in the book. And uh, what was surprising to me was that the afternoon time that is suggested to be our trough and the thought that decisions shouldn't be made in the afternoon And the basis given in the book includes the story from 1915, around the First World War, when Captain Turner, who was at the helm of a ship, saw a spotted a German submarine, and he hadn't slept the night before. It says that in the book. And he made some technical decisions that led to sinking of the ship. Now, that's a theory, that it was the time of the day that he made the decision, in the afternoon. If he had seen the submarine in the morning, he would have made maybe the same decision. And we don't know what else was going on and what, you know, and whether he had any other person to help him, a colleague to help him. But we do know that he had not slept the night before and these were technical decisions, which definitely require a fresh mind usually, at least 
All laboratory professionals know that. And then these scientific articles that are referenced are for collective group patterns. So if you read the 2011 science article, it is difficult to apply, at least I found it difficult to apply. They looked at the tweets of a number of people across the world and measured their mood. Now, tweets may not necessarily give the correct mood of the person. And it's even if it does, in whatever manner, it is a collective form. It can't be applied really to individuals and or individual situations where there are usually many more variables that exist apart from just the time of the day. Then he, he goes on to the article about a day reconstruction method, which I sort of looked up a little bit. I've never studied that before, where they interviewed 900 women, asked them about what their mood was the previous day, and ranked it on a score of 0 to 6. And if you look at the graph, the graph is actually the lowest point is 3.5, highest 4.5. On a scale of 0 to 6, if the graph varies from 3.5 to 4.5, that's Mike in the middle of the graph. If I were to be asked, let's say I was a woman on the interview, what was your mood the previous day? I don't know, but I would call my mood as 3 or 3.5 or for happiness or 4. So I don't know what this means, really. And that's, I would be curious to learn from others what you, you know, what you all thought. I can uh, speak to what Rena's saying. And by the way, I really appreciate your analysis of, of that. And I had a similar thought when I saw that they were using the information they gathered through tweets about what people's moods were. And I, I wondered as well how reliable that was. But then they did also share information about how students perform with testing. And they talked about how we have all these high stake tests at early in the morning. And they even went on to talk about, you know, classes like the math and the sciences, the harder classes, and that students perform better in the morning. So I do feel like they did try to add more, I'll say, evidence to the claim that they were making. And I want to just add one thing to what you were saying. So I was interested to learn about how, you know, the bad decisions can be made in the afternoon based on our chronotypes or how we respond best to in certain times of the day. But I also found it interesting to learn from this book how powerful time can be. And that was something that I really hadn't thought about. I knew myself that, you know, I was fresher in the morning and there were things that I like to take care of in the morning. But I thought that was just me being, I don't want to say a like a taskmaster. I want to get something done rather than procrastinate, but maybe it also has to do with the type of person that I am, a lark versus an owl. So I thought that was interesting. And I would say the other thing that I found surprising was just the power of timing. And the author actually used the word invisible power of timing. So I don't want to give myself credit for saying that, but the invisible power of timing. So I found that to be very interesting. Stacy. For me, a lot of those things just kind of validated what I'd already seen in myself. I knew that I was very active in the morning. I mean, I can be late for work sometimes because I'm too busy doing other things and jump in the shower last minute. You know, I tell people flat out my best hours are between midnight and noon. Don't, don't bring me something new after lunch. And I just figured I was tired at that point. And then later in the day, it's like, yippee, yay, I'm, I'm leaving to go home. I didn't think of this as a natural cycle that people all over fell into. The thing that surprised me the most about this book that was a set your book down and think about it moment was actually towards the end where he starts talking about thinking intenses. The idea that some languages are more invested in time and tense, like for instance, ours, English, can actually set somebody up to being more likely to think of themselves, their future self, as a separate, different person, and they're less likely to save for that person's retirement, blew my mind for a second there. Yeah, I think that concept, that notion of how much language shapes our minds and behavior is fascinating. When I got my bachelor's degree, one of my majors was linguistics. And my bachelor thesis won on past tense indicators of the Malay language because it's very, it's fascinating because there's not really a, their past tense indicators, it, they don't really have a past tense per se. And now what you're, what you're talking about and what the book describes, it just makes it so interesting of how exactly, like you said, like how much 
are our behaviors shaped by the language or languages that we grew up learning? What are your thoughts on that? Does, does, did anybody feel like language has influenced if they're a lark or an owl or how they think of themselves in the future or past or present? I think language does differ from place to place, of course, in how much we can express ourselves. But I have never thought about it as defining anything related to whether we are a lark or an owl. So now I have not put that together at all ever, or even thought about it. It's an interesting idea. It can be very expressive. Some languages are. My native language is far more expressive than English sometimes, but I speak English more than at work, of course. So I don't know, at least not for me. So I want to talk a little bit about the concept of breaks, because the book talks about the importance of breaks a lot and how breaks improve test scores, um, even favorable rulings in court, and just overall performance for everyone. And that there are five guiding principles for breaks that are especially restorative. So a break is better than no break at all, which seems pretty straightforward. He mentions that moving breaks are better than stationary breaks, that social breaks are better than breaks on your own, taking breaks outside are better than taking breaks inside, or if you can't do it outside, then even a room with plants or anything where you're watching some type of outside nature scene is good, and that fully detached breaks are better than semi-detached, meaning that you're not really discussing work. So... Basically, in short, that taking moving breaks outside with a friend while not discussing or not really discussing work are the best. But I've often find myself struggling taking breaks. I'm very much a genie, what you said, very task oriented. I'm very happy when I get things done. I love to do lists where I don't cross things off. I have even, even if I did a task already, but I, so I can't, but I didn't write it down, so I couldn't cross it off. I have definitely written it down then just to cross it off. So it just makes me very excited. So then how can we convince ourselves to take these little micro breaks throughout the day, which, you know, we know that they make our work more productive, but when we're struggling to do that, what are some tips that you all have for us to to really do step away, even if it is just for a few minutes. Stacey. If you have that one friend that's trying to be more active or something like that, the two of you look out for each other, maybe stop by each other's office and say, hey, let's go for a quick walk. And, you know, do that for like your 15 minute morning break. And, you know, we have a training track out front that we can go outside the building and walk around. But there is also a nice pathway that goes around the back of the dining facility and through the warehouse that's a half mile loop. But I agree, the outside is better. You still feel like a mushroom and like you haven't been out even after you do that mile twice around the basement. You know what I mean? But yeah, if you just kind of have that, that friend that's also looking out for your break. Yeah, like an accountability buddy. And I, and I think just to elaborate a little bit on Loti's question before we get into your other answers i won't say there are two types because i hate typing and labeling people but i think of my workflow for example as being sedentary right i'm i'm working remotely so i'm sitting in front of two monitors with a third computer over here i've got two telephones so for me digital interface is my constant day and if i need to take a break the digital interface has to has to kind of allow me to do that so one of the things that i do because i'm in that setting is when i'm scheduling my i schedule all my projects right so if i need to write questions for a future podcast i put on my calendar write questions for future podcasts and i give it time but i put breaks in the day and i don't put anything in those slots and when i get to one of those points i get up i go to the restroom i go play with my dogs i go see my spouse i walk around or whatever and then i come back so it's easy for me to say hey take a break because i'm sitting in front of the calendar but i imagine for someone like stacy who's in the lab you know working around the benches etc you don't have that constant digital interface of your workstation you've got everything going on in the lab so when you're answering that question think about that from those two those two contexts of you know having like a 
what I would call a monotonous kind of approach with, you know, which me and a factory worker have in common, right? With the way our day goes versus someone who's literally walking around and interacting with different people and equipment and stuff as part of their routine. How do those people take breaks versus, versus that other, that other group? That's right. And that's a really important point. You make that everybody's going to be either in a different profession or in a different place. You know, you may not necessarily be, let's say, at work, but let's say you're working on a big project and you're at home and it's on a weekend and you still need to take that break. That was one thing that I felt I really got out of the book because it really explained to me the importance of taking that break. I'm usually somebody who just wants to sit down and just plug through it. Let's just push through it. We'll get it done. I used to look at naps as like, oh, only people that aren't feeling well, or if you're old, you take naps, right? So I never really, really, or a baby, babies are always napping. So I never really was able to consider the value of a nap before this. And um, I really appreciated them also talking about teenagers and uh, young children about their sleeping patterns, because having three teenagers myself, I have a son who is always tired, always tired. He can, he can't wake up up in the morning for school. He's always tired in the afternoon when he's trying to do homework, he's falling asleep. And after I read the book and it suggested taking that 20 to 30 minute power nap and even the use of caffeine, like if you're going to have the coffee, you know, when's the best time to have your coffee in the morning and, and things like that, which I never really even thought about before. So I thought that that was really important uh, message from the book. So I think how we can best tell ourselves and kind of train our minds to take that break is to, to expose ourselves to things like reading this book and, and other types of books that, that talk about the power of, of taking breaks. And then you, you really have to do work, I think, to convince yourself because we tend to, I know I any, anyway am a creature of habit and I, and I get into this routine. And even though I tell myself I'm flexible, <laughs> when my routine isn't the same for a day, the next day I'm like, oh, I have to get back to doing it that way. So it takes practice. And I like the idea that others have suggested about actually putting it on your schedule and then taking it. So if you're going to do the, I think they do something, they suggest maybe three micro breaks. If you're going to do that three times a day, actually do that and, you know, get up, go to another space, which I think is important, whether you're at home or in the work site, in the lab or in the office, going to a different place and, and getting that change of scenery and take your phone in case someone needs to call you because you have an emergency, but try not to check your emails. That's the worst thing. Just when you think you're about to settle down, you're going to get a couple of minutes to yourself. And then you go and you see someone responded to an email that you knew was kind of lingering. And then you see what they need you to do next. I can guarantee you when you're taking that break, you're already, at least I know I'm always putting together a list of what I need to do next. So I think that's important. If you can, you know, decompress and, and try to get away from some of that, that's important. Absolutely. Yeah. And for those who were interested about what the author said about caffeine consumption, the short of it is that you should take caffeine 90 minutes after waking up, because if you take it within the first 90 minutes, the effect of the caffeine doesn't really work on your body because of other hormones that you have when you're waking up still. So if you really want the full kick of the caffeine, take it after 90 minutes. And then if you want to maximize your nap, you should drink 200 milligrams of caffeine before you nap, then take a short 10 to 20 minute nap, because then by the time you wake up, the caffeine is kicking in and you feel great. That's basically the short of it, in case anyone was wondering. Rena, did you also have some some thoughts or comments? So these on are all great. You know, you've all covered the micro breaks part, really, I think. I mean, working at a computer and dance point is so valid. I mean, it depends on the situation you're in. And if you're supposing typing all the time, Stretching your fingers every once in a while, doing some wrist exercises, I find that really helps, you know. Looking out the window, even if there's snow outside, um, taking a break, getting out in the fresh air, everything's been mentioned already for micro breaks. It's for the real breaks when we get to. That's where I find if I switch my mind from an analytic task to something else, say some, some project is really, I'm thinking about a project that is over a few weeks maybe or a few days, and I'm trying to find an answer to something, then coming back home and putting my mind to do something else that's equally absorbing for my mind, but completely different from what I do at work, like cooking something, 
or baking something. Find a dish to make that is complex, that's going to take my mind, and I'll get totally involved in it. And I find the answer comes to me for that thing in the middle of that somewhere. You know, so it does something. I don't know what, but it really, when, when you're relaxed and you put your mind to creativity in a manner which is different from what you're trying to think about, the answer can sometimes just be obvious right in front of you. You know, so I find that very helpful. And I, I do that. <laughs> I will come back. I have done that before. Come back home, make things, take it to work next day. And, and just, you know, at the same time, I've accomplished two things. An answer for myself and, and, and some group collaboration. Yeah, I, th I think you're hitting on an important second concept, which is, I don't think is really ex completely expressed in the book, but it's the uh, concept of mindfulness, right? Is yes. that, which is a whole other conversation, but timing is so important for mindfulness. If you, if you do any mindfulness readings at all, you know, they talk about when you do your mindfulness, you know, meditations or exercises, and it corresponds almost perfectly with the timing discussions that are presented by Pink in this book. But I think, you know, the idea that we can take a pause from what we're, we're stressed about by occupying our mind with something that allows us to get rid of all the negative thoughts, et cetera. The beauty of that is when you clear that out, the positive thoughts can come in. And that's exactly what you're talking about. The solutions you need, for yeah. example, for a problem can come in. And I wanted to make two other quick comments. One, Stacy talked about taking a walk, especially with a friend who was trying to lose weight. I think that when people have sedentary jobs or if they if they are, are facing problems with their weight, variability in that exercise is really good as well because you want the you know the walk that you described is wonderful but break that walk up or go a different route or maybe do a you know an in-step jogging or something you know whatever it is it doesn't matter but the take home is that you, you know your breaks are supposed to allow you to mentally break away from work right literally that's what you do and if you do the same kind of monotonous it's not something honest, but repetitive exercise, it doesn't give your brain enough break. But if you can create different physical exercise opportunities, even minorly different ones, just going a different route or et cetera, um, doing it a different point in the day, that will allow your brain to be, you know, to disconnect as properly. And with regard to emails, Jeannie, I greatly appreciate the idea, you know, take your phone with you on your break because somebody may call you. But for me, I use a purge, purge, purge approach. So when I look at email, it's when I'm in the bathroom, I'm purging. Let's just get it all out of there at the same time, trash all this email, get it out of the way. So when I get back to my desk, I don't have 20 emails waiting for me and I can start working on the things I need to work on. So aligning the purging of your email with the purging of your body can be very cathartic and, and it makes you respect your email in a very different way. Another thing that I think somebody did mention earlier already, like, you know, I'm a pathologist. I'm very used to seeing images all the time. So sometimes, like even reading a book, or I'm used to seeing a lot of video things nowadays, but changing that to a podcast can be a break itself. And yet, it can give you the same thing that you might be wanting from the video thing. You know, so a change in any kind of a way can just taking it away from the same repetitive, whatever it is you're doing, whatever the analysis is, whether it's looking at slides, whether it's looking at something on the computer, it, it makes a difference and it gives us a break and helps. That's something that I've learned. So I wanted to talk briefly, we, we've said, as Loti mentioned in the overview, the larks, the owls, the third birds, and we've talked now about breaks, but there's also the idea that you do have to perform even in these trough periods. So what are some things you can do or tricks or things that might people might could use to actually be able to do their performance during the trough time? Because Rena was saying, you know, I think that people make bad decisions in the afternoon. You gave the example, and sometimes you have to work in the afternoon when you know it's the trough and sometimes you have to make a decision. So what are some tools or tricks people can use to actually perform when we know they're gonna be in that trough period? I would start that project during my peak time or maybe the tail end of my peak time and put myself in the mindset that I have a sense of urgency about getting this done. Like, you know, recently getting the contracts together for the CBC analyzer, you know, getting all that, the calculations done and everything. I started that in the morning, collected some of my basic info, got my spreadsheet started, 
And then I just, I was able to keep on that through the afternoon. I was able to keep it going. I wouldn't have been able to start it effectively in the afternoon, but that train can keep on going through the afternoon. Something else that I do is, you know, if I've had to put out too many fires, too many disruptions to really get started on anything in the morning, I do routine tasks that I know need to be done, like scheduling. I tell people it's my version of Sudoku. And I sit there and work on the schedules for the next month. It's still productive, but it doesn't necessarily require me to really gear up for anything. Yeah. Another um, hint I can give or tip I would do is if I'm working on something in the evening, like six to nine, because I'm definitely an early day person, I might finish the project or put together the paper or whatever I'm working on. And then I typically won't send it, right? Like, and I'm always working on it in advance. So it's not that it's due that next morning. And then I give myself the next morning or the next day when I feel fresh to look it over. So that's something that I would suggest, like maybe getting the test done. But if you can, if you're in a situation where you can look it over when you feel fresh the next day. And another suggestion I can give is, so for example, typically I give trainings during the day, but if I was assigned a task to do something like six to nine at night, which I found a lot was, a lot of this was happening with COVID when things sort of were going virtual and you could now do a Zoom at night. I would make sure that myself and my students and whoever's attending the Zoom at that time, that we actually take a break. So it's important to make sure to, you know, continue to take breaks and and do things like that. You know, get the students to stand up or the, the people attending, maybe even doing a couple of jumping jacks in place or just walking around. And like I said, I, I really like what Stacy said about maybe sending out information and working on things earlier in the day to get yourself ready for that performance or what you have to do later on in the evening. So one more point on breaks. Has anybody else noticed how hard it is to add stop onto your list of things to do? Rena, go ahead. Yeah. So for a midway slump, I'm thinking, okay, like on a daily basis and then on a project that we might have to do on a, you know, we all work on things that may take a few weeks or a few months. So if it's something on a daily basis, so let's say for me, it's looking at slides and maybe some creative work at the same time, maybe some teaching at the same time. If there is a slump, I think switching that task really helps. We've said that already, um, the type of the task. And then if it is something over a period of few weeks or a few months and we are working in a group together for some kind of a project and we are in a slump, I first of all try to figure out why we did the project, remind myself why we wanted to do this project in the first place. Is that reason still important? And who will benefit from that? And it's usually something to do with patients, something to do with patient care, right? We all work for that. So that's where my motivation comes back and to restart and complete the project. And if it's some something we're doing, some we do everything in teams. There's really nothing we do single-handedly, right? So if the team working on it, we group down together, talk about it. What are the issues each person is facing? We already have decided and, and talked about at the beginning of the project, what we are going to do and who's going to be taking charge of whatever and what is the timing. So there might be individual problems somebody is facing. There might be something that we are all facing as a group. So we discuss all that and to help all of that, that communication is absolutely critical. What matters to the entire team, what matters to their lives at some point in time might be very important. Have lunch with them, uh, talk about what we could do further, and then who will benefit? It's usually the patients. And then somehow that motivation comes back. And that is really the point that brings back the motivation for myself. And I find that brings it back for the entire team eventually. Of course, erasing all the problems that we may have been going through. And then another way I find is, again, focusing on something else for some time, maybe drop it for some time if necessary, dropping meaning put a pause on it for some time for necessary, and then picking it back up. Maybe some other priority came up in the lab, COVID came up, something, everything else got dropped. So, you know, things like that. And if it's a very big challenge that is causing a slump, some really big challenge, it's very important to be kind to yourself and to everybody else involved. I think that's really, really important to then get back to be, to be able to get back 
to um, completing whatever it is you wanted to complete. So that's kind of my two cents. Yeah, and, and I think Stacy, thank you, thank you, Rena. That that's really, I think, an important challenge is the type of work that you're doing and what you need to do to get through it. And it goes back to Stacy's point about the stop, like how can you stop? And so I, I think when we look at that, it's the same, as I mentioned before, it's the same concept of, I have more in common with a factory worker today than I have with Rena because, or, or with Stacy, because Rena is getting patient cases and she's on committees and she's, you know, and Stacy's got this instrument and this task and this management deal she has to do. And some of those are today things. And some of those are this week things and some of those are this month things. Whereas I like a factory worker can start my day, work on whatever projects I want to, and then I can just stop whenever I need to stop and do that because it's all controlled. It's all in that, that digital environment. So I think when you have a mixed task day, meaning, you know, here are the set of 15 things that must be done before the end of the day, before you can go home, because they're crucial to patient care. And you can easily imagine what those might be, calibrations, QC, checking reports, signing out cases, whatever they are. And then here's four projects that you're also working on, one of which is due in a month, one of which is due in four months, one of which is due in six months, right? That's the kind of, I think, where this kind of a book and mindfulness as well, but, but this book about timing can be so helpful for people because you can say, okay, I need to, as Stacy very expertly pointed out, I need to reserve the afternoon for monotonous tasks that don't require any creativity that I can just get through and push through them with the tedium that I need to do because I'm not going to be able to come up with new ideas at, in my trough phase, right? But I know that, oh, this project is due in a month. I'm going to spend an hour on it you know, at my peak time or first thing in the morning when my innovation is highest so that I can make some progress on that. And I think, you know, Rena, you were talking about, you know, maybe you put it on the back burner, et cetera. But I think that's what this book allows you to do is say, all right, I'm going to be very thoughtful about when I actually think about these projects and push tasks to the, you know, the, the trough part of the day that I know I can get through them and I have to get through them. But with stopping my personal experience, my personal advice, you can do it one of two ways. You can say, I'm going to stop when I get this list done, right? Or you can say, I'm going to stop at this time. And this is always a problem for salaried employees. For hourly employees, they don't have this problem. Oh, day's over, I've gone home. But when you're a salaried employee, I personally set time goals for myself. I say, I have to be done with what I'm working on today, XPM, right? And for me, that works because it's all project-based, right? I don't really have any daily tasks I need to do, even in, in you know my regular job, my side job, whatever, there are no like predetermined tasks that I have to do. So I can just say, okay, I finished what I'm doing and I can go home. But when you have that mixed pattern where you have things you must do and then projects you need to work on, I think that's where this book can be really helpful. I'd love your thoughts on that about, about what you push to the trough period versus what you use your innovation periods for throughout the day. You know, one of the things that I try to do, and of course, it doesn't always work, but is to reserve those things that I really enjoy doing for my trough period, just because I find if I'm stuck with doing certain tasks that cost me a lot of energy, then it's just going to take me twice as long and probably, you know, half as the quality is half as good. But then what I also really enjoy doing is scheduling meetings during that period, because even though I have a preference for introversion during my trough period, having meetings actually helps because then I am re-energized by other people's ideas and it gets me not out of my mind, but out of computer tasks and more into a collaborative space. And I find that that actually really re-energizes me. And on top of that, I really like not having any meetings in the mornings because I'm a lark I am most productive then. So I, it just feels really good to be able to get to work when I don't have any meetings in the morning to just get all these things done, but also to use this fresh mind that I have on these things that I have to do and to have the space to do them instead of um, having meetings in the mornings and then having to do all my other tasks in the afternoon. Does that make sense? It does because I do it myself. I've actually had people accuse me of not being a morning person because they've interrupted that process and now I'm unhappy, you know, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but I am a morning person. It's just, it's mine. Yeah, exactly. You're a protective morning person, but you are a morning person. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> totally get that. Yeah. So actually I, you know, one of the things that really I wondered about when I was reading the book or listening to the book, cause I had 
it on audiobook was if there was a connection with introversion and extroversion and if people are a lark owl lark or owl so really those spectrums so if you are energized in the morning or really energized in the evening and i wondered does it have anything to do with introversion because if you let's say you have if you have a preference for introversion then and you go to a typical job with people then it could be that you feel depleted in the afternoon just by being around people and then of course the opposite but if you're uh, extroverted that then you feel energized about these people so that you take that energy home with you and then you know are very energized and productive in the evening or late night hours so i have no idea if there is any correlation to this at all but i just wanted to know if any of you had any thoughts on that well i've noticed nobody seems to plan morning dance parties <laughs> yeah <laughs> all those extroverted loud events are in the owls time frame that's a good point yeah yeah i feel it's very hard i don't try to type anybody as an introvert or an extrovert and i i think that most people both tendencies i do i think we're it's about 68% of people are supposed to be ambivert or something like that and i sort of sense that i i think that so much of our personalities can depend upon individual life experiences and even other interactions and in experiences which can be different for different people even in the same environment i've seen that happen so in a typical day at work i can be quiet when i need to be and i can just listen or i can talk we can talk right now it all depends on the situation and both situations can occur at any time of the day in a pathology and laboratory medicine you know environment really for me so it's for me i think it's difficult to say whether having one tendency or another might have anything to do with the time when one is most energized i think it might be more related to when we do those activities or like you just mentioned lori that meeting with people energizes you during that trough time so i don't know whether it has anything to do with be i am curious to learn about that if there might be anything but i personally don't think there might be uh, from at least whatever i was observed i would just add to that that i think a lot of the interaction with people is influenced by their energy their personal energy So if you normally were around people that were very draining or there were a lot of negative influences I think that that would then have have an effect to you know definitely bring down your mood and even though it is your morning let's say and it's your peak time you might be brought down so you might find maybe that day you're actually reversed where once you're away from that negativity you might then get that surge later on maybe at the slump time when you normally wouldn't have had it because now you feel energized because you're kind of away from that i don't know just something to think about and i think in our since someone mentioned it earlier in our pandemic era that we're in is a physical in person meeting with with six other people 10 to be whatever the same as a zoom meeting right is it we are recording this podcast as a zoom um i can see all of you we're you know we're there we can see your faces it's like we're interacting but is it the same effect as if you were all here and we were talking and and how does that impact your energy level you know it's as an introvert or an extrovert so i think i think that's one that's one question i have then the other observation that i would make is that because i'm in california my day starts typically at 6am sometimes 5am because the vast majority of my colleagues that i meet with are in europe or in geneva or in africa and so i routinely have 5am 6am 7am meetings and so by 9am my time which is when people in chicago's day kind of get started they've had their coffee it's been their 90 minutes they're ready to start having meetings i'm like ready to go and awake and energetic 
And, and they've always say, how are you so energetic first thing in the morning? I was like, cause it's not first thing in the morning. I've been working for four hours. So I, I, I think that I've definitely noticed an invigoration or an, an energy and I am an extrovert lean towards being an extrovert. I can be an introvert. I've noticed an invigoration even over zoom that happens and it has, I won't say messed up, but it's altered my timing. My daily timing is different from what it used to be the afternoons in Chicago, when I would physically go to the office, were my downtime, like nothing was happening, people were going home. And so I would get projects done, I would work, work on things because I would be alone. But now, because it's the sort of the, it's virtual, my end of the day really happens around two, or sorry, around three, because it's two hours ahead, everybody's done at five, you know, towards three o'clock, I start getting tired. And I'm like, okay, I'm done working because I've been working since so early. But it's also because all the energy is gone too. I don't have any more meetings. I'm not seeing people even virtually because, because the kind of the day has ended. And that's created something really unique, which is a 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. period for me, where there's no one working that I'm working with. Everyone's asleep in Africa and Europe. And what am I to do with that time? And I've used that to go to the gym, which is something I would never have been able to do in Chicago because it was five to seven and I had to get home and have dinner, whatever. So, so having this off cycle and the, the virtual remoting, it's definitely changed my timing, but it's also allowed me to take advantage of that, that timing in a way that I didn't know possible. And after reading, when, when I was reading the book, I recognized that I said, oh, that's what I've done. I've converted this bad period into a good period because I've, I've shifted my work the way that I work. So we want to ask about working groups. We're working on projects. We talked about projects and scheduling them ourselves, et cetera. And so we want to think about the workflow of your, of a project when you're doing it. And, and Rena mentioned this briefly, but I wanted to hear from, from everyone. So does it follow the same beginning, middle and ending um, as the author shows experience with groups working on projects? Do you see that in your, in your projects? I definitely do. I mean, I will comment that it talked about how in the middle you find when you're on a project that people tend to get more invigorated and really more task oriented when they know that that deadline is approaching. And it seems that in the beginning, it's a lot more uh, brainstorming and people sharing ideas and coming up with the best approach to things. I have found that on projects I've been involved in. And I sometimes find that we actually get more done when we know a project is, let's say, two weeks out, as opposed to, oh, in about a year, we have to have this ready. <laughs> and then like we have a hard time finding dates to get together and get things done. And then as we get closer, let's say it was a year deadline, maybe the last three months, we then are really meeting and, and getting focused. So I definitely found a relationship in what I've experienced working on projects and in groups with what the book was saying. Just before we hear from others, a comment about that, because I think it's really important, Jeannie, is, you know, is there a rhythm with your teams? So many organizations have, and I'm going to forget all the terms because it's been a bit for me, but many organizations have structures, you know, matrix structure or cross productivity structure, whatever you want to call it where you would work with different teams on different projects all the time. But some groups, you're working with the same project team all the time, especially in the lab. Like if the lab has to get something done, it's the lab team that needs to do it, maybe with some outside interaction. So is there a role for learning your team's sort of perfect time window for a project, right? I mean, we don't always get that luxury if the CFO says, oh, we have to have this new equipment paid for and installed in seven months, right? Well, you know, there's a hard deadline, but when you actually start that process with your team for all the work they need to do, is there a magical like period where it's like, if we know this project is four months away, we are, we'll get it done and do it. But if it's six months away, there's lag and nobody does anything for the first two months, plus you're putting something on people's plate and, you know, kind of disrupting their, their normal day because like, oh, I've got this other project at some point I have to start. Is that something that, that there are examples of or we can learn from where you can say there's this natural rhythm to our team? And so when we, we're going to do a new project, you, you know, we start them three and a half months out because that's that magic window where we know we'll get it done. Stacy, I think I want to take this in a slightly different direction because coming from a stat lab environment, I may have projects, the management team I'm a part of may have separate projects, but my team, their project is 24-7 availability of laboratory testing. So where my mind went when I was listening to you speaking is, yes, I do want the people on the ship that matches their biorhythm. There are people that excel from midnight to noon, and they want to be on third shift, and they are very productive there. 
But then you've got those other people that are just not happy unless they're on evenings because they don't get going until later. And to try to force them to cover another shift, yes, the teamwork suffers and the work quality suffers. You just kind of all comes together a lot better if you can match their biorhythm with their shift. No, I agree with what Stacy said. The biorhythm really does matter. You know, when she was talking, it reminds me of several instances you know, in a pathology and a laboratory medicine environment, there are lots of things happening in like the AP, anatomic pathology, clinical pathology, hematopathology, molecular pathology, and I'm boarded in all of these. So all of these places, it really helps if tasks are matched to the biorhythm of the person. And I have seen some examples. I mean, it's very simple everywhere. Cytometry lab, if samples need to be triaged and seen by a hematopathologists before they run the sample. And we have a plan. Okay, this person comes in really early in the morning because they are on that this thing and they will run it. I'll be ready there to see it early as well. And and then they'll run it and we'll have the answer back by out by 9 or 10, 10 a.m. in the morning for the patient or something like that. Similarly, in the histology lab, if there are some biopsies needed to be read really early in the morning, there's a histology tech that's always who's willing to come early, will come and process early and things do things early. So biorhythm definitely matters. If there is somebody on a team, if we can spread that out, you know, and sort of cover everybody like that, it definitely makes a difference. And it emphasizes and helps with the quality of uh, what goes out in the lab, you know, the, the accuracy, precision, everything. Everybody's sharp at their best levels. The work is done, the coordination is there, and it just that definitely helps. Fully agree with what Stacy said. So the book references, and we've talked, we've brushed upon it a little bit earlier in the episode, that the timing of decisions is important, meaning that when in the day you make the decisions can actually heavily influence if the decisions are good or they're not. If you reflect on your own decision making, when do you make the best decisions? And then what tips do you have for, because I mean, let's face it, we all have to make decisions during times where we may not be the best timing to make decisions. What do you have, what can you recommend for people that when they do need to make decisions, even though the timing is not necessarily optimal? I mean, I'll share that similar to what I was saying with having to perform off peak. I tend to, again, try to do a lot of evidence gathering. So I'm a big person. I I like to reach out to people I've always looked to as mentors or sponsors and ask their opinion about something. If, if I have time, if the time allows me to do that. So I've gathered all this information so that when it comes to making the decision, if it isn't off time for me, I feel like I have more evidence to sort of back that decision. If I can though, I prefer to make it when I'm clear-minded, which to me, again, I always feel like earlier in the day. I find I think a lot about things probably in the middle of the night when I should be sleeping. I'll wake up and I'll be thinking about something I have to make a decision about. And then that next morning when I go into work, I tend to be somebody that wants to try to just make the decision and and take care of it early while I feel like I'm clear-minded. So it's just a suggestion. It almost feels like the evening for me, it, it resets my care button if that makes sense, like things I'll care about a lot in the afternoon after a good night's sleep is like, oh, I can actually see them in perspective and not, you know, I don't, I care a normal amount about it. I don't care too much. I don't care too little. Like it's been reset and like, okay, now I have a clear decision. That's how it feels sometimes. Yeah. I just want to add this, that for me, the way I think about this it depends on the decision type that needs to be made, right? I mean, it could be a stat decision that somebody needs to make for somebody's life. I mean, we are faced, as a pathologist, I'm faced with these things. It could be a frozen section. It could be a diagnosis of an acute leukemia that I have to render right away or not, or meaning right away, meaning within an hour or two or something like that. That's always like an, on the top of my mind. Whatever time of day it comes is, should never be a problem. It's never a problem, really, because the mind is alert to that. That's our training. That's how we are built, really, throughout our long training. That's how we become. That the time of the day doesn't matter. I could be called in the middle of the night. I will still do the same job, I hope, and I've always done that, whether or not it is. But a decision that perhaps a bit, you know, so there are different kinds of decisions. 
Another case, okay, it's a difficult biopsy or a difficult where I have to pull previous patients' records or previous biopsies. It's a more complicated decision. And now the decision will matter as to what we, it gets signed out. So that might spread out over a few days, depending on the urgency of the case. And that is something that perhaps I will take my time to put it together. And anything that I think to prioritize as to what is really important, what needs to be done, is there that urgency in the lab for something that is required? So if it's a difficult decision, and sometimes it is not important to immediately render a decision, it's more important to render the correct decision. And for that, sometimes we need more time. And if we need more time, we should ask for that, explain the situation, why this is not what it is, and take that. If it's a case where I have 10 biopsies from the same patient to look at, I will take my time to look at them and then come to a decision when it is the right time. And usually, or that's one example, or if it's a case, it's a single biopsy, but a ton of slides I have to look at. I might look at it the day before, but I will still perhaps decide. The important thing is to know when to postpone making your final call, whether it is the evening or the morning is not the point. The point is to make sure you realize that this is not the right time for you to put that decision down on paper and move it to the next morning if you have to. That judgment, that thing, I think, is really essential for the right decision making in critical, in critical situations. That's, that's kind of my take on it. I agree with Rena. The importance of that decision plays a big role in this. If they're asking me to make a a snap decision about where to move a piece of equipment, you know, I can probably intercept that later once I've thought about it, or I could probably just live with it. But if it's a patient care thing, the phones could be ringing off the hook. There could be angry medical professionals wanting the answer, but we'll take our time. We'll remake the slide. We'll take another look. It's better. It's the right result. So yeah, if I had to ask somebody else for their opinion, just to make sure I was thinking clearly and making the right decision, I would do that in a patient care situation. For other decisions that I might just have, you know, maybe a few minutes to make that decision. If it's late in the day, I might explain that logic to somebody else. Even if it's a tech that I know has aspirations of one day being in management, I explain it to them. And if, if I hear myself explaining it to them and I'm not making a good case, then maybe I need to think a little harder. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. So we're coming to the close of this session. So any final thoughts on the book, When by Daniel Pink from our panelists? Any final thoughts? One thing I found interesting was the nines. So apparently when we hit nine, whether we're 29, 39, 49, we might want to run a marathon or do something new. So think about that. And it's the whole concept of you kind of coming to the end of something and then you have that idea of that new beginning. So maybe you are close to a nine and you've been thinking of one of these things. Well, thank you. As, I'm, as I have that in about a two year period to think about that nine, I will, I will take that to heart. So thanks everyone so much for participating. <laughs> I think this has been a really um, interesting discussion and I know that we all learned a lot. I wanna remind everyone to please tell your colleagues about the podcast. And reminder to subscribe to your favorite podcast aggregator um, so you don't miss any future podcasts. And as always, don't forget that you can receive CME and CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ACP store on our website at www.acp.org.